1: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we are still at sea, and the ocean is still none of my business.
2: And yet, I'm learning so much about it, and you're you're learning too. Um, This week, we've got a special guest to guide us. So Christine Bassett is currently a program coordinator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Weather Program Office, so they're at NOAA. And she supports work that advances Noah's ability to improve predictions between weather and climate timescales. So that's between two weeks, which is like weather, and two years, climate. Um, I still don't know what's less than two weeks. I'm I'm just already confused. So uh, there's so much room for me to grow personally (laughs) in this episode. (laughs) Uh, but uh, Christine will defend her dissertation in geological sciences at the University of Alabama late this summer so very excited for her (laughs) Um, and so her research focuses on finding new ways to understand past meteorological and oceanographic conditions in the North Pacific Ocean using the chemistry and physiology of marine mollusks. So we're doing some seashell science. She mm. does seashell science.
1: Seashells. <laughs> mm. Okay.
2: So we workshop that. Ab- abandoning that <laughs> because we are clamoring to know more Clamoring.
1: <laughs> yeah. So thank you, thank you, Christine, for talking to us. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's get right into it then. How did you first get into sort of your corner of the intersection of archaeology, climate, and geology? And, and what has your trajectory been up till now?
3: <laughs> uh, my trajectory has been really windy. Um, So let's see, I came to archeology span really by sort of reinventing the wheel. Um, And I suppose what I mean by that is that I actually started out in biological and cultural anthropology, um, thinking about how social and economic factors influence biological processes and whatnot. And part of that coursework involved several paleoanthropology courses where I heard about this geology stuff. Um, So I eventually wandered over to the geology department and gotten to all sorts of good fun. And, you know, quite by chance, um, this led me to my master's and Ph.D. advisor, Dr. Fred Andrus um, at the University of Alabama. And uh, he reconstructs environmental information from shellfish middens um, found throughout the archaeological records. So sort of weaving in that uh, social science and physical science, if you will, Uh trying to make it all make sense.
1: Uh, Fred, what a nice guy. (laughs) Yes,
2: he's lovely. What was it about um, that work that you were doing or, or studying with under him? Uh, and really what questions first got you interested in that intersection between archaeology and climate research? Climate research is sort of, I would think, kind of further away from like the human-y parts, like you're mm-hmm. going from like what's happening inside humans, like biologically to what's happening among humans to sort of the world in which they were leaving the signatures through their, their interactions with their bodies. (laughs) Like it's sort of,
3: how'd you get there? Yeah, The
2: the scales are really.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend that it makes sense to anybody outside of my head, but um, what had initially interested me was, um, Actually, understanding the intersection of modern society and climate, and so during my undergraduate days in anthropology, there was a doctoral student at my undergraduate institution who was looking at how changes in glacial hydrology in the Andes um, impacted social and economic frameworks for indigenous communities. Real and quick, so as, mm-hmm, glacial hydrology. Tell us what. Yes, can you please tell us what that is? <laughs> Question mark. So, yeah, so just basically um, seasonal changes and how much runoff is coming from glaciers um, uh, up in the Andes. Okay.
2: okay Okay. great and does that have an impact what does that impact like irrigation is that sort of Mm -hmm. like okay so it's like glacial fed irrigation rather than like rain fed irrigation right is that sort of okay
3: yes okay Yes, that's, that's my understanding. But again, okay. there's many years between that and now, so yes, <laughs> take right. that as you will. <laughs> um, but as I was learning more about this work, um, I became increasingly interested in how the changes we're experiencing today compared to the changes experienced throughout Earth history. And so from there, I sort of spiraled into the wonderful world of paleoclimate and uh, paleoceanography and discovered that there was this fantastic group of archaeologists and geologists that were working on reconstructing paleo environments using shellfish that had been excavated from archaeological sites
1: um, all over the world. So here I am. (laughs) Yeah. The reason that I know you, Christine, is that you are... Currently part of the Unalaska Sea Ice Project, which I was mm-hmm. lucky enough to also take part in while I was at Boston University. So can you tell us a bit about the project and your specific part in it?
3: Yeah, sure. Um, so the Unalaska Sea Ice Project is NSF-funded research that's led by Dr. Catherine West um, at Boston University. Um, and that's in collaboration with my advisor, Dr. Andrus, and also Dr. Mike Etneier. Um, and with this research, we're hoping to answer questions about the presence of the remains of sea ice loving seals and archaeological materials from Unalaska Island, which is a remote island in the Aleutian Island volcanic arc.
1: Yeah, and those, so some
3: archaeology. Yeah. Sorry, it's
1: just the little islands that trail off of the sort of southwest corner of Alaska. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: that's right. Stunningly beautiful place, mm-hmm. Anna. You know this. Um, mm-hmm. So for anybody listening, if you can go, highly recommend Get up it. There. Yeah. Seals? Yeah. Are you saying seals like mm-hmm. orp orp seals? <laughs> like yep, different types yeah. of seals: ring seals, harbor seals. There's okay. many different okay. kinds of seals up there. Okay, I'm just I
2: I come from a <laughs> my research comes from a part of the world in which you have a very different type of seals S- of clay so. cylinder seals. Yes. Yep. Oh, so a, <laughs> no, not yeah, the okay, orp orp great. kind. Yep, not the orp orp kind. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Okay, yeah. so there there remain so and they lived on sea ice?
3: They hang out. Yeah. Uh-huh. They have mm-hmm. little babies on sea ice. Like what's their That's deal? right. That's exactly okay. right. And, okay. and so the presence, uh, I think it, my understanding, and I'm not doing the seal biology part of okay. this question, but my understanding is that, um, the presence of juvenile seals, um, indicates that they were at the the edge of the, like the southernmost extent of the sea ice. Um, okay. And so finding finding these juvenile seal remains in the mid-ends, um, some archaeologists have suggested that these remains indicate the presence of sea ice in the Bering Sea this far south. Okay. And I should note that historic records never document sea ice occurring as far south as the Aleutians. So really fascinating to think about from, you know a physical science question as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
2: And and I'm I'm so sorry. I'm gonna keep asking questions because I don't know anything about this. Um and so sea ice, sort of the extent of it, is it seasonal? Is it is it sort of fairly static like in the short term and it's more an indicator of climate? Like does does it creep down and then creep back up over the course of a year, or is on yes. a longer scale? Okay,
3: yeah, no, it is absolutely a seasonal phenomenon. So, you know, in the the winter time, the the sea ice extent will come much further south, and then it will melt again um, as okay. temperatures warm in the in the summertime. So, yeah, it's a very seasonal process. Um, and so basically our team plans to address questions about the southernmost extent of the sea ice um, by using a combination of archaeological analysis, um, paleo-environmental reconstructions via stable isotopes um, from animal bones and shells. Mm-hmm. I think somebody is working on toolkit analysis and also comparing it to some contemporary oceanographic analyses.
1: Oh, wow. So yeah. the idea is that the seal bones are present in a part of the Aleutians that would suggest that the sea ice got farther south than mm-hmm. anyone has ever seen or had like a record of it. In the
3: Yeah, in the historic record, because if you look into the if you look into the paleoclimate record, um, you know. Tens of thousands of years ago, you you would probably be able to identify a time period that sea ice may have come as far south, but certainly during the historic record, um, we don't have documentation of sea ice coming as far south as the Aleutians.
1: Right. So the question is then like, where would those seals come from?
3: That's right,
1: and and so the extent of so what's
2: like what's your the time scale of this project and sort of the material that um, is being studied or excavated or.
3: Our analysis focuses on um, well-preserved faunal deposits from three mm-hmm. previously excavated sites that are housed at the Museum of the Aleutians. And they okay. date from approximately 4,700 to 350 years before present.
1: Okay. Yeah, so fairly recent okay. in okay. terms
2: of the things mm-hmm. that you, okay.
1: you and I talked that's about. Okay, right. so
2: the, not the like tens of thousands of years no. kind of. Okay, okay. Uh, that's, but that's a that's a good that's a good chunk of time, <laughs> sort of, I guess <laughs> it is it, 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 it stands it seems reasonable to me that you would see you you one could see like pretty considerable fluctuations in that time, but I don't know yeah, that's why you're yeah. here
3: yeah that is that is why I'm here, and we are still very much <laughs> answering that question. <laughs> To sort of back that up a little bit, a a large chunk of this study is a modern calibration to see exactly how well the chemicals, um, the chemical analyses of these seashells reflect sea surface temperature, right? Because we have to have a a high confidence um, or a high degree of confidence that, you know, we can actually get those sea surface temperatures from the geochemistry of these shells before we go back and apply them to the archaeological samples. So so, this has actually been really, I would say seventy percent of the work has been in the modern and and thirty percent you know, in the archaeological record, okay,
2: okay, like as your work and as this project continues, um, you you mentioned sort of sort of I don't know calibrating or it's just sort of figuring out like how much you can find out from the material um but but what what can clamshells in uh, butter clams is that mm-hmm. is that okay sexodomus baby that's right <laughs> so, so what what can they tell us like Ooh, do, do, like because yeah. i'm thinking like because me somebody who knows nothing about this topic it would sort of be like clams are there they're like sort of in the same thing as this the the juvenile seal remains like just sort of like their yeah. presence itself like tells us something. Oh, it's so much cooler than that. Are the, are (laughs) just like the fact that there are like clams like hanging out or, and these are clams that have been processed exclusively or are they clams that just lived and passed (laughs) away and, (laughs)
3: Yeah, well, they were, they were definitely, uh, they were definitely somebody's dinner. So you do, uh, you do find these in in huge piles in some locations. You'll see these. Okay. They they didn't like beach themselves. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, uh, they didn't. Um, But, but well, all right. So buckle up, right? So clams and many other mollusks are, are just truly fascinating creatures. But I do want to back up first to talk about a way to understand past climate that I think most people um, have probably heard of. And that's tree rings. Mm-hmm. and so many tree rings or many trees right form their rings Um, On an annual basis, and that's based on the seasonal changes in environmental conditions. And so from those rings, we can estimate not only the age of an individual tree, but we can also measure the width of each increment between those rings to sort of qualitatively infer how much rain fell each year. So was there more rain or was there less rain, right? And there are many other methods that climatologists um, that study trees can use, which also includes geochemical analyses. And so many mollusks do the same thing, right, where they form their shells in a similar manner to trees and they form growth bands with a certain periodicity. And in mollusks that periodicity can be yearly, it can be monthly, can be weekly and even in some species daily. What? And so, yeah. <laughs> oh no. Really phenomenal. And so
2: so this is so it's not the like and just okay, just to make sure that I understand so far, they're growing. So this is them growing sort of outwards not mm-hmm. thicker right
3: they, like they do or, grow or outwards both. and they is do it thicker. sort of mm-hmm.
2: so there's multiple axes of of growth that's right
1: at whatever rate is relevant to
2: the species that's
1: yeah right. so picture a okay. little clam amber and then Let's... just kind of i'm going to send you a, a photo of a butter clam where you can actually see the the growth rings and you can imagine it okay. starting out as a little baby clam and then just adding on length mm-hmm. and width yeah 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 Yep.
3: Okay. That's exactly right. Yeah. So we can use the number and the width of those bands, right. To answer questions about how long individuals were growing throughout the year, or mm-hmm. even if an individual is subtitle versus intertidal, which by the way, can tell us about water depth a little bit. Hmm. Um, but maybe a little bit about how people were collecting them as well, right. Were they, um, were they, oh, did they have to die at low tide or do they have to die? Now I, I can, you know, from my biased perspective here, I would assert that probably people are not diving for them in the Aleutians, Um, but certainly other species, you know, in, in a little bit more temperate and tropical climates, if they are making daily growth bands, then we can infer if they were subtitle versus in our title. And then of course, how people were collecting them.
2: A daily growth band would be impacted by when they were like submerged, right? Like, is that sort of
3: Exactly, and and oh. so with daily growth bands, the way that it works, right, is that um, it's tied to the it's tied to the different lunars, you know, the lunar phases. Um, and oh so they God. do this tidal bundling, <laughs> where when the water goes out, right, um, and comes back, they're making a different sort of rhythm in their daily growth bands. Versus if they're subtitle, that sort of um, rhythm that could be tied to the lunar cycle is just not there.
1: It doesn't affect them because they're not. There's being uncovered right. and covered and uncovered, yeah. and uncovered and covered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm
3: getting lightheaded. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're just, we're just starting. I <laughs> <Yeah. know. laughs> the other really neat thing about marine mollusks, right, is that the chemistry of their shells is also a reflection of the temperature of the water that they're growing in, as okay. well as the chemical properties of that water. And so, okay. using geochemical analyses, we can infer things like changes in water temperature, salinity, productivity, water circulation patterns, and so on and so forth. So that can tell us a story about what's going on um, in the water. And in some cases, a little bit the the atmosphere. So as much well. data in
2: one little clam.
3: So,
2: so mm-hmm. but productivity in this sense, I'm assuming, is not like words per minute or no. like <laughs> sales closed. <laughs> like, what does productivity mean? ABC with always be clamming.
3: Yeah. So, so thinking about it from, from our perspective, looking at, at bivalves, right, we're thinking sort of qualitatively about how many nutrients or how much nutrient load was in the water, right? So it's, are they living in a really productive environment or are they living in a really nutrient poor environment?
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is there Um, lots of food or not?
2: And, And so our, and I, I recognize that this may be outside of your um like your specialty or maybe it isn't i don't know um but i'm thinking about uh so when i think about sort of isotopic analyses and and sort of Mm -hmm. geochemical signatures of things i think about um work that i've done with ceramic materials Mm -hmm. or the work that um i you know past guests even have done in terms of um being able to sort of place like on the like on the earth <laughs> like in, mm-hmm. in a ge- like geological space um points of origin or where things were like what like where things uh where an organism sort of grew up yeah. I so fingerprinting like, yeah basically yeah. yeah yeah and and also just getting a sense of of where it was formed and and versus where it was deposited now i i don't believe that clams are super mobile but is this something themselves but is this something that can be um brought into the conversation um if we're looking at um local you know, thinking, versus imported clams what, like things uh. being harvested like is, is there something that you can have a, a, a degree of resolution where you could see that um so it was harvested and then, perhaps processed at another location. So, like, sort of, like, would the midden be? Is is the assumption? It's just that like it
3: came from there,
2: ocean like to just, table.
3: Yeah, yeah. Sort of, yeah, like Ocean to midden. No, no, I unfortunately that I don't think that's something that we can do at this time. That I that okay. I'm aware of. Maybe there's some work that somebody's doing with trace elements that have that's starting to address. This. Yeah, like, and I, but, yeah, because I just don't know. Like, is that? I mean, it's all yeah, ocean. It gets tricky. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, I would say one of the big things that would complicate our ability to do that with um, mollusks is that the chemical signature of their shell is also influenced by, for example, how much freshwater water. Is being input into their environment. So butter clams, for example, are an estuarine species. They don't live in the open, they don't live in the open ocean environment, right? Okay. And so their the water chemistry is impacted by both the open ocean chemical signature and also the freshwater signature so things can get really muddy pun intended really fast right okay um so so i would say no probably not but that's not to say there's not somebody out there sort of tinkering away at this question because that would be really neat yeah
2: yeah i just wanted to check because like i I (laughs) like i suspected that it's not the same uh elements that are being but i've just wondered if if, if there were an analog and perhaps some of our listeners were wondering that yeah. um, and then I have one more question uh, sure. right now it's like when you talk about the introduction of fresh water mm-hmm. um, is that something that can be um, is impacted by melting ice or like glacial um, well glaciers are not on the water uh, but just thinking about sort of sea ice is sea yeah. ice salty <laughs> or is it
3: <laughs> or, or is it
2: yeah like but isn't that yeah again see i i like i work in deserts i'm from the mountains i don't know anything
1: about oceans. <laughs> none of your business <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Just like but but is that something that is that something that affects it like if it is like a melting like, if, if the, the ice is it's it's melting in this season versus it is um, like the, the, it's relatively uh, more saline because there's more water like locked up in sea ice. Is, yeah. is that, or is it just really just location near um, like at an, at an estuary or, or where a, a river or stream would be like meeting
3: ocean yeah. water? So, so what I will tell you is the physical environment gets really complicated really fast, okay. right? And there's a lot of different things that can change the salinity, um, okay. you know, freshwater inputs that could affect the salinity of these environments. What I will say about butter clams, right, is that they actually don't like to grow in water that is cold enough for sea ice to form. So actually oh, the presence too of these... Chilly. Yeah, the presence of these um, butter clams in these sites in and of itself is a little bit of a hint that maybe it's not as cold as some folks might think they are. Um, But that's not to say that you couldn't have one anomalously cold winter, right? And and that's sort of the last point that makes working with mollusks as archives of climate really cool is that you can actually get really high resolution data. So for example, with some species, we can get weekly averages of different kinds of data like sea surface temperature. Whereas like more traditional methods, such as sediment cores, will average tens to hundreds, even thousands of years together. So you miss Mm -hmm. things like seasonal temperature, maxima and minima. So really neat critters, those mollusks.
2: Oh my (laughs) gosh. And this just, and it's just mollusks and just specific uh, sort of species that that grow in this way? Or are there other Um, things that...
3: Yeah, no, there are definitely other things that do this. Um,
2: so I'm never so, going to be able to eat seafood again, as if I could already. Just like looking at them and be like, what do you know?
3: Yeah, so well, was, so fish, right, make otoliths, right? Catherine actually is more of an expert on otoliths than I am, but fish have these calcium carbonate discs sort of in their the placement where their ears ear bones. would be, right? Yeah. Yeah, basically ear bones that you can get, you can do stable isotope analysis of them and mm-hmm. get... Some information okay. about how old they are and changes in water properties as well. Corals wow. do this. So corals are probably one of the most um, classical paleoclimate proxies in terms of biological organisms. And so they have similar banding um, and interactions with their environment. Um, and a lab mate of mine actually worked on one organism called coralline algae, which is basically an encrusting hard algae that forms in these layers from year to year. Huh. Um, and she oh, wow. she was actually able blood. to do rocks and yeah like rocky substrates and okay. um she was actually able to detect glacial melt from um you know massive glaciers off the coast of greenland by, oh, by doing wow. that geochemical analysis on coral and algae that were growing in some of the fjords
1: i mean very North cool Atlantic, bad so. news for us but yeah <laughs> mm.
3: yeah so so yeah oh, there wow. are all sorts of organisms that you can use these methods on um
1: Really need stuff. Well, let's, let's backpedal for just a second and talk a little bit about the butter clam just sort of as a food resource. Because what I remember about butter clams <laughs> from being in the Aleutians and, and looking at them is you can't eat them. <laughs> right. Um,
3: well, yeah. well, you can't now, but well, well, you, you can, can't, but it's not like, recommended.
1: Yeah. Oh. So, cause they're oh. filter feeders, right? And they That's right. can be toxic and
2: so some of the things that they're filtering now not are right. not
3: well oh, yeah so so what happens is sometimes um, when the water conditions are right so it can be a combination of nutrients and temperature right you'll get these things called harmful algal blooms and oh. basically what that is is this massive it bloom really of algae it freaks me out about the ocean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so these these blooms, right, are formed yeah. of um, different species of dinoflagellates that can be toxic to humans if consumed, right? But because, as Anna mentioned, because clams are filter feeders, yeah, not right, toxic they're to clams, filtering yeah, not at all. And in fact, um one one species of uh, this plankton is is named at oh, I think the sorry, I think butter clams are named after the specific species that they filter so much of it in mm. um that there is this association with Saxidomus and um, the particular species. I can't remember the name of it, but um the particular species of plankton that they filter.
1: I think the plankton must be named after the clam because Saxodomus just means stonehouse.
3: Could be. You might I be right. Think that I will... describes a clam. I don't know. It does. I'm going to take your word for it. I think you're right, okay. but nonetheless, right? <laughs> this 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 plankton is toxic if consumed by humans, and okay. so they they concentrate this um, plankton into its you know the tissue the toxin from the plankton into its tissues, and so when people mm-hmm. consume them, it can cause paralytic shellfish poisoning, which is oh my you know, gosh, you can't be which can up be to... fatal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which can be fatal if you're. In a place like Alaska, and not close to hospitals. And so, um, the sort of traditional convention for when to eat them is not in the summertime, yep. right? So, I, I think, I believe it's the months that don't end in R, you should not eat them.
1: Uh, so, yes, October, so yes, like, November, September, December. Yeah. Interesting. And then, and then it's it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay.
2: Oh, yeah. All right. And so, by filtering it, are would butter clams be part of the um sort of recovery of that environment like that like after a bloom yeah (laughs) like are are they a part of sort of just like filtering it out and making it um sort of um safe from the perspective of of humans trying to get food out of it
3: uh, that's a good um, question. I, I don't know that I know the answer to that question. Okay. I suppose, to some extent, it depends on how large the bloom is, right?
2: Yeah. Okay, but they okay. So, but they they would have been a um, likely a, a seasonal a, a food source at that point. So
3: funny you should ask um (laughs) in some places they it does seem to be a seasonal resource right and other places not so much they they harvest clams year-round and so you actually can use the geochemical analyses at the sort of last growing edge of the shell before it was collected you can measure the stable isotopes at sort of the end of its lifetime to figure out what season it was collected in and so um actually Megan Bert Megan Birchall um has done a lot of work on this, uh, looking at sort of the seasonality of different sites and collection patterns of uh, butter clams by doing this sort of season of capture analysis um, that I just described. So, so yeah, in some places it is very much it is very much a seasonal resource,s but in other places it is year round.
1: And and my understanding is that whatever the seasonality data. Um, it may not completely reflect the actual time that the clams were consumed because you can smoke and dry clam meat. Um, sure, and so sure. it, it could still be something that they collected and then ate later. Mm-hmm. But yeah. You um,
3: probably know more about that part of it than I do.
1: <laughs> only only extremely v- vaguely. So yeah. I'm not going to um, stick my okay, head out so, any farther. Okay,
2: than so my, my – um, <laughs> I'm going to put your little – a little gastropod out um <laughs> um so okay so my um poorly informed theory that like if it were possible to do isotopic analyses for sort of movement of those clams like there is something there's something there that like if there if there were sort of like a clam smoking um environment and then you could travel with them like well you wouldn't be traveling with the
1: shells are
2: they not they're not smoked in shell i don't
1: i i don't know i don't okay know. well we're, <laughs> i mean you could my point is that you could, thinking, could fit more again, unshelled not, clams into a bag totally than.
2: still not super clear on like
1: clams.
2: Okay. So, I think I was thinking of pistachios. So, we can we mm, can move different on. kind so of shellfish. Ta- <laughs> the pistachio. We can we can take a break so I can Google clam.
1: Yeah. Um, so, okay. yeah, go ahead and Google that and and go breathe into a paper bag for a minute. We're going to take uh, a quick yeah. ad break and we will be right back.
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. culturomedia.com.
2: And we're back, and uh, wouldn't you know it? I've got another question. Um, So, um, Christine, so your skill set, your research skill set, is it specific to the Arctic? Is it specific to butter clams? Um, So could you do the work that you do in other... other oceans, Um, like
3: other parts of the world, other time periods? No, my skill set is not at all specific to the Arctic. Um, While most of my dissertation work has been with butter clams as part of the Unalaska Sea Ice Project, I've actually also worked with abalone from the California Channel Islands. I like to call them charismatic. uh, I like to call them charismatic mega mollusks, by the way. Um, Oh, I like that. Great. Right. <laughs> um, so, with that work, I actually began laying the groundwork for using a suite of stable isotopes so, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon to sort of infer the occurrence of upwelling in the California current over the course of the snail's life. So that project is very much a work in progress. Um okay. I've also dabbled with some freshwater snails from caves located in Central America. Um and yeah, I mean there's there's people working on all, all sorts of um, organisms from all sorts of of locations from the so tropics the whole to the poles. Mollusk world
1: it, that I know nothing about.
3: Yeah.
2: And so as yeah. a snail so snails in caves Cave mm-hmm. snails. As,
3: what, um, would mm-hmm. their climate be Well, so the, the I same? don't believe that the snails were living in the caves. They Aww. were transported by okay. Okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> transported okay, by okay. people. Okay. Oh, the okay. cave and, was okay. the um,
1: restaurant. Okay.
3: Yeah. And and actually left there um, you know, sort of on the floor of the caves. Okay. So Okay. So yeah, that, that's really neat. Um, I, I would okay, say so one of the biggest limitations that's not the climate. though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, like, no. it's cold and, um, <laughs> 56 no. degrees. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I, I would say okay. one of the biggest limitations though is time periods. Um, okay. and I, I couldn't put a specific number to this, right? Because it kind of depends on the questions that you're asking. Um, but of course the biggest, limiting factor here is the preservation. So, you know, certainly the most recent, the sample, the more you can get from it, because you can analyze not only the calcium carbonate that the shell itself is made of, but the organic material in the different, you know, with between the crystals of calcium carbonate. Um, So certainly within, you know, the Holocene or the last 10,000 years, you mm-hmm. can get a lot of really good information from them. So, you can also So 10,000 years is soon enough known no. for like a lot <laughs> well, of information. Like well, as, as you probably know, it very much depends on the environment, right? And the preservation of the of the different samples. Um so yeah. you'll it'll be very different from Samples that were collected from desert sites versus Arctic sites versus, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it is very much a factor of the preservation of the shells. Now some geologists will use some of these geochemical methods, right. On samples that were collected 65 to, you know, 70 million years ago. And we'll look at, at, you know, species that were living at the same time that dinosaurs were stomping around the earth. Right. Um, so you can actually take um at least the methods on the calcium carbonate back a very long time.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um and then one I have one more question about the <laughs> uh, about other time periods and um and and I thinking about mo- mo- most recently. Uh, and so you you know you say like the the more recent, the more likely it, you know, it's, it's to be preserved, and you can get more mm-hmm. out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But what about things in um, the 20th century? If you were to look at something now, like is this something that is impacted um, in the way that so many things, like other organisms that we're sort of testing and studying, is this something that is impacted by things like? Um, nuclear testing, or oh yeah, does it make uh, like the pollution? The or isotopes goofy. Yeah, we like we just had a like we it the the idea of forever chemicals has just entered the discourse. Yeah, um, and so is this something that um, are there sort of anthropogenic changes um, to these organisms that you see on the the scale that you are studying them is that something and maybe you haven't encountered them because you aren't really working with like anything like yeah you know like so not, no 1962 no like, so sales or anything like that but is that something that is mm-hmm. affected and will be a, sort mm-hmm. of a consideration for you know your great 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 grand students um, yeah, I mean,
3: what? potentially, right? Um, potentially, absolutely. I haven't had to deal with this in any of the research that I'm doing, okay. but my, my advisor actually had done some work up here in the Chesapeake Bay, where he was looking at archaeological samples of um, oysters, and he was looking at nitrogen isotopes um, from samples that were collected both pre and post industrial periods, right? Mm-hmm. And you can, you can see a very marked difference in the nitrogen isotopes, um, from the samples that were were collected from the archaeological sites, you know, pre industrial versus the ones that are contemporary samples. Um, oh, wow. So yeah, you you absolutely can start getting at some of these questions about what the anthropogenic impacts on environments have been. Um, and and forever chemicals are an interesting one too, right? Because you know, a lot of these a lot of these bivalves, all the bivalves, right, are, are filter feeders, and so yeah potentially there should be some signature in their shells that would, you know, allow us to sort of see the presence of those forever chemicals. Now, I don't know that anybody has actually gone and looked right, because it's one thing to sort of theorize that they might be there. It's another thing to actually measure it. Right. So I don't know the answer to that question, but, but because, but that project you get know, funded. Yeah. You, you are what you eat. Right. Yeah. So in, in mm-hmm. theory, yeah. You know, yeah. They should be there. I'm sure they are present in the soft tissues. Um, mm-hmm. how that gets incorporated into the shell or not is another mm-hmm. question, but, right. but That's yeah, really there are, there are some, yeah. yeah, there are some things that would show up. So like I mentioned, um, you know, pollution, right. in the Chesapeake mm-hmm. Bay is something that you see that difference, um, depending on what time period you're measuring
1: in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something I've seen in person, but, um, <laughs> and guys, so impressive, but when you are, um, up in the Aleutians does a typical day of data collection look like for you what is typical I don't know well okay
3: word. uh what um, does it look like when you go out in
1: the field <laughs> <laughs> and by field I mean ocean
3: yeah so so oh working up in the Aleutians um it's a lot of fun um, it's, it's a wild ride, right? Because you're, you're on an island out in the middle of the ocean. And so the weather, you know, really changes. You can have all four seasons in the span of a day. Right. So, um, I would say everything you do is fairly weather dependent, but, um, you know, during the course of my master's and PhD, of course I'd spend a few weeks of the summer up in Alaska. And so we'd be setting up environmental monitoring tour tools. So like, uh, temperature sensors and things like that. And, you know, we'd have to set up sort of a system where somebody would go out and take water samples um, at a certain certain frequency. And then we would collect live clams. And, um, you know, collecting live clams, I think most people, what they think is, oh, well, you know, you go out at low tide, you look for the little spurts of water, and then you dig them up. And, and that's Certainly, what I did for my master's um, up in Kodiak Island, which is another island, um, more bears off the coast there of Alaska. Definitely more bears there. Um, that oh, was a you. <laughs> you. You weren't digging for bears?
1: No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
3: They're little snoots up above the yeah. sand, right? Uh, That's that would not be fun. No. Find. Oddly enough, I never saw a bear while I was there. But paranoia oh. is a real thing. Um. <laughs> <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> um yeah, I definitely <laughs> suffered from that. So when I was on Kodiak, I did go out at low tide and I would look for the little spurts, you know, and, you know, little siphons and, and dig them up. Um, took me a little while to get the, the hang of it. I did not grow up on the coast, um, but that's how I collected my live specimen. When I started doing work out in, um, out in, in Alaska, it was a little bit different. And I can attest to this. I actually <laughs> had to learn how to um, cold water scuba dive. And that was an, that was an experience. It's like diving in a plastic trash bag. It's very yeah. difficult to control your buoyancy. So were um, you, were,
2: were you um, sort of a recreational diver before
1: that? Like, have you, no, like, is that something not at all? That, oh my God, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and not pick up all. that skill for my research.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I was, I was not a diver at all. Um, and I had gone up, I remember I went up for my first field season and was working with a Sea Grant officer there because she was sort of the expert on the local ecology and how we would actually manage to find these things. And um, she had gone out with her dive buddy the first season we were up there to install our temperature loggers. So they would record over the course of the the project. And she looks at me one day, she's like, you know, you should, you should really learn how to dive because I'm just, I'm just going to go and grab whatever clam I see. I don't know if it's what you want or what you need. I'm just gonna Mm -hmm. get it if it's a butter clam. So if you learn how to dive, you can really help guide the sample collection. That's the point where I'd be like, I'll make it work. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like (laughs) do what you can. I'll make it work. (laughs) Well I made it work by learning how to dive and it was definitely uh, (laughs) an undertaking but it was it was worth it. I I very much prefer cold water diving to to more temperate and warm water. Um (laughs) It's a really beautiful environment. I loved it. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, once we have enough samples, you uh, bring them back to the lab, which is, you know, it's a journey in and of itself because you're collecting um, these live specimens and cleaning them out and then having to transport them either via USPS um, or on an airplane and hoping to God that you cleaned all of the organic tissue mm. so it doesn't, the Stinky. stink doesn't follow you home. Okay. So they don't stay alive. Okay. No. No, and cleaning in fact them that out
2: is, is a yeah. euphemism. <laughs> okay. I was just yeah. like, give them a little bath. Like I no.
3: Oh, no. I'm so, no. I'm so no. precious. No. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Just... We are we're shucking them. No. And in fact, okay. um, actually the reason we collect life samples is because knowing the day that they they died on is actually a really important part of the research because okay. we need to know what that day is so that way we can pick that day out in our environmental monitoring <laughs> data. So okay. you know we can stay clam exactly (laughs) so so we can say okay we collected this on july 17th right and then we can go back and look at our temperature record and pinpoint where july 17th was and then sort of you know backtrack all of that temperature data and match it up with the growth of the clam so we do actually really need to know that last day that it it was alive yeah okay
1: yeah and i want to you left out the part where you wear a hundred pounds of kit (laughs) and also have to fend off hungry sea otters. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, it's really cute, but yeah.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, It, it is, you know, to be able to, to sink in water that that's, that's that cold, you actually have to be quite heavy. And again, it's like diving in a plastic garbage bag. So, you know, you, you dive in this dry suit so you can maintain the proper body temperature, but the trade-off is that you're basically diving in a giant bubble of air so you're
2: you're diving in the jacket that missy elliott was wearing in that Mm. one video or yeah 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 that's what you're going down that's exactly that's exactly (laughs) right (laughs) and a lot of weight looks like yeah yeah okay so if we just okay
1: yep so my job for the sea ice project was much more uh, it was partially uh, museum specimens and, and cataloging okay. everything, and that. So and it was also like keeping Christine, Christine down. No, it was, <laughs> it was keeping Christine fed. Probably,
3: yeah. Oh yeah, you you and Catherine were lovely. You'd bring hot tea after a dive and food. It was fantastic. And yeah, because you, I, you made like, really wonderful
1: food. Thank you. I I like to I, feed people, but it's just like the amount of energy that you expended for like you know a couple of hours of data collecting. It was just insane. It's enormous.
2: So you, you were underwater
3: that whole time yeah yeah so So we spend
2: maybe 45
3: minutes or so yeah 45 minutes or so yeah (laughs) okay yeah and I mean not only you know do you have all this weight on you that expends an enormous amount of energy but you know your body has to work harder when you're in colder water to maintain body temperatures so that also is a higher expenditure of energy so yeah I was very hungry by the time I came (laughs) home so (laughs) I'm (laughs) thinking Yeah and yeah and so like and otters were like getting clams too you were like not well we like, we like didn't the, mine. <laughs> they, they, were, they weren't terribly friendly but they do they do eat butter clams as well and so you can okay. actually find evidence based on the way that the the shell has been cracked open whether or not it had been a sea otter but the way that oh. we actually um collected them you know under the the surface of the water was by looking for something called pycnopodia sea stars so they're the like I think they have 16 legs. Don't quote me on this, but they have a bazillion legs. I'm not going to send you a picture
1: of this, Amber, but it's a, so cool. yeah, it's a kind of starfish. Yeah.
3: Well, so what they do when they eat, um, different types of mollusks, right. Is they, um, extend their stomachs, right. Because they digest their food that way before pulling it in. And so you would look for these, um, Pycnopodia sea, sea stars that had a bulge in them and we would take them and flip them over to see if they were still eating their, for dinner. And then we, you know, if it was a Give butter your clam, clam, we would just be like, thank you. That's mine. <laughs> and flip it back over and, and be on our way. So, you know, <laughs> they were probably a little bit upset, but relatively unharmed. And we got our, we got our butter clams, but that right? was a really easy way to, well, well, actually there's a backstory to why we decided to collect them like this. And that's, you know, these, these clams will, down into the sediments, you know, 20, 30 centimeters sometimes. So the question is how, oh, wow. how do you effectively dig for these things while you're controlling your buoyancy underwater Yeah, without like snapping off? Because we tried this with little hand rakes, but we would ultimately um, have to grab their siphon and go so fast to get them out. And oh, more often yeah. than not, what happened is we'd accidentally just pop their siphon off yeah, and still okay. not get the butter clam. Yeah,
0: yeah it was really oh. bad.
3: So we tried a different strategy, oh, which no. actually worked out really, really well.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I'm, hmm. I'm glad that worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
3: that's that's how we came to the strategy of using the, the Pycnopodia. Yeah,
2: so. good. Well, yeah. I just learned that Pycnopodia helianthoides is solitary. And I can mm-hmm. only imagine that's because it scares everything off <laughs> <laughs> yeah very likely i would imagine so i get it it is it is beautiful in a like mm-hmm.
1: lovecraftian sense <laughs> yeah if you like very leggy eldritch horrors yeah sure. they've got right. between
2: five 15 and 24 legs a lot of That's legs right. so yeah
1: yeah
3: more Lots more than legs. they need <laughs> mm-hmm. one Say could yeah 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 okay That's so exactly you would
2: right. so you'd look for for those little guys and
3: Mm -hmm. yeah so we'd just be you know swimming along flipping them all over (laughs) excuse me (laughs) just like mugging sea stars
2: yeah yeah that's that's right Mm -hmm. oh wow that's incredible so so you (laughs) so like just so your your field day is just sort of like a couple hours of like Extreme conditions, yeah. and then yeah. and then like coming up, cleaning it out, and sort of packing things for study. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, back at the museum or back at your institution, or both.
0: Um, like,
2: what, the, would you the, do lab work during sort of oh, like after yeah. you take a nap and eat like six thousand calories? No, like no, it, no. you would do it later. No, okay.
3: <laughs> no, all of the work was done back in the lab. Okay, um, yeah, after you know, obviously a week of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I can also attest, um, one of the fun things about doing fieldwork in Alaska in the summer is that the sun like basically doesn't set, right? Or it sets ridiculously. It sets at like 11.30 like, it, p.m. It's like in the Aleutians. Yeah. In the Aleutians, it does actually set... Um, I believe it sets all year. I mean, I believe it sets even in the summer, but um, it's ridiculously late. It's like 11 p.m. or 12 p.m. or yeah. 12 a.m. Mm-hmm. And so you go and have your day of doing field work and then you come back, eat some food and you're like, "Who wants to hike a mountain?"
1: Me okay. so, Me, I do. So, wow. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. we did. <laughs> we did. Uh, and so, so you just pretty.
3: kind of it's so pretty. and mm-hmm. so you just run yourself ragged for the whole couple of
1: you're up there so yeah. well. <laughs> it was great. Oh, wow. I don't know if yeah. I've slept that well since.
3: No, no, nope. I agree. <sighs> I agree. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun.
2: Oh, it sounds amazing. I mean, yeah. I like, there are definitely some parts that aren't for me, but <laughs> I love for you, but I love the sound of like the hiking
3: and the weather. Yeah. And the,
2: and there's foxes and,
1: and bald eagles everywhere yeah. and puffins. You yeah. See puffins? Oh, puffins? oh puffins, yeah.
3: And oh. one of the traditions that I, I started doing when I started doing workout in the Aleutians is is picking salmon berries
1: and making yeah. um
3: salmonberry jelly every year. So I'd always come back from field work with like 16 jars of salmon oh. berry jelly. Amber,
1: before you ask, I think they're called salmon berries because they their ripeness coincides with the salmon run. Not because okay. they look or taste anything like salmon. They taste have, sort of like blackberries. I was
2: going like to mm-hmm. guess that they had a color that looked like the flesh of salmon. Um, Not like, dissimilar, but, but I think it's okay. the timing. But it's, it's yeah. okay. It's the time of year. Uh, what do mm-hmm. they taste like? Not salmon. I know what salmon tastes like. Kind of kind of blackberryish. Okay, yeah. Blackberries. Okay.
3: Yeah. Um, ugh,
2: that just sounds so lovely. It is. Oh, I'm sold. So yeah. We had a great time. <laughs>
3: we did we really did
2: um so in your research over the years Mm -hmm. um what's the thing that's been the most surprising or sort of i don't know could be along along with that or flip side um the the trickiest to deal with like is there something trickier than (laughs) staying alive (laughs) like in your giant like sea bag or is there something that is indeed trickier You've, you've named a lot of tricky things and a lot there of surprising
3: are, things. I was going to say like we've sound- hit on, we've hit on most of the surprising things, you know, and, and <laughs> I think this is always a hard question because I've been doing this for so many years now that I forget yeah. how truly amazing the work is. I've um, seen it all. It's yeah, it's, it's something else, but um, you know, one of the things that can be really hard, right. Is the the fact that this field location is very remote. And so you, yeah. it's like, you have one chance to do this each year. So you have to you know, make sure you take everything that you need because there's not, you know, there's not, there aren't very many stores to buy not something that you forgot, right? right. Like, Two. Um, it, if you don't get enough samples, you can't just go back next weekend, you know? So just yeah. thinking about the field logistics of taking everything you need. I took my I took my dive gear up with me because um, I actually had a custom suit made so that I, I could make sure that everything was properly sealed off and no okay. water was leaking. So I, I had to take an extra bag of dive gear. Um, you know, you've got to take all of your sampling equipment and things like that. So, so anybody who does, you know, field work, of course, in remote locations can relate to this, but it's just a huge logistical feat to get everything you need up there. Yeah. Um, and again, because you can't just go to the store and purchase things that you forget, um, yeah. as easily, you really have to plan ahead pretty well. Um, and,
2: um, and, you know, if this hits on something that you don't want to talk about, please, by all means, uh, you could refuse. But is it, um, is it isolating up there? Like, is, is there sort of like an, uh, like an emotional or psychological toll to doing the, the type of sample collection that you do or sort of the research mm-hmm. that you do that you are sort of um, out on a boat and then under the water? And just sort of like not only is it that you have to kind of pack everything out. Um, to to get there and then you sort of have this finite amount of time but but just sort of like these sort of degrees of remoteness that you kind of layer onto to um, your your work to the point where you're like by yourself under the yeah. like under the water um, yeah. like that's is, it, is it it well see that's interesting that you say it sounds peaceful I think that that sounds um, like frankly terrifying like it just sounds like like you can sort of be very lonely.
3: Yeah. Well, so first of all, you never dive alone. You always dive with a buddy. So okay. I, I am never alone when I'm diving. Okay. Um, oh, like there is, but there is sort of like a, an inherent loneliness of there is. You're in your, because, own, you're in your own little environment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you are. Um, I I would agree with Anna. Honestly, I always found it really peaceful. I mean, the other thing to add to to this is there's no cell service. You know, there's like Mm -hmm. one corner of the island where you go and or or the museum has Wi-Fi. So you could sometimes go there and use their very limited bandwidth to check your email or make a call Mm -hmm. out to home to make sure everybody knows you didn't (laughs) you didn't die under the water.
0: Um, My mom was
3: horrified when I told her what I was going to do, by the way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I actually actually found it really comforting. I found that my time in Alaska was really good to sort of reconnect with myself because there was just so much less noise from everything else telling me what I needed to do, who I needed Mm -hmm. to be, right? And just gave me the space to just be and just enjoy the moment in a way that I don't think any of us have really felt since uh, before <laughs> the dawn of smartphones. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I actually really cherish all of my time up there and the isolation that comes with it. Right. Um,
2: yeah. Oh, that sounds, yeah. That sounds wonderful. I'm so glad that that is sort of how yeah. that played out for you. Um, yeah, yeah. If, you if you ever because want to take
1: a writer's retreat to an extreme Amber.
3: Um, that's the place. That's the place. Uh, that's okay. the place. It's, it's lovely. In, in a dive suit.
2: Yeah. Okay. but events. just like but
1: just on land just yeah flapping around yeah. In, in oh flippers. yeah
2: after after Anna went there it just it really does seem um i i am a big fan i won't shut of, up about
1: it no, <laughs> right no no, no, no no like i i am
2: i am very moved by landscape just and so yeah. sort of like and in places that like you know i I love the landscape of, and sort of the topography of, of the place that I'm from and I find it very moving. And I have like a, um, I I feel that I have like the, the like deepest connection that like a settler like can have Mm -hmm. uh, sort of on like sort of the, the, the land on which I've, I've trod. Um, But I, I do really find myself. um, I, I love, I love seeing places that feel, alien like to me so yeah. like places that are very spare very dry like it like Anna and her partner like took me on a hike out in the prairie and I freaked out because I was just like <laughs> look at this <laughs> like, and so I think that yeah I would love ah. to go there because just seeing um just like looking out and seeing Oh, what my first instinct is nothing but then, oh no yeah. my well, second instinct is like no 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 but you like look out oh, and, yeah. and just sort of like when you're out on the water and like but there's so much like there's sort of like like lives have been spent like out oh, yeah. here and yeah. and sort of like all of like the biomass under us and so yeah it is it is something so if you ever need to get a gig at the Alaska, uh tourism authority
3: Right. Uh, let's <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can,
2: I can recommend you. Let's all. I, go I think
3: that's a really good point. I think when I started doing field work out there, there really was a little bit of a paradigm shift because you're in such a remote location, right? And this absolutely stunning landscape and you've, you know, I don't know, I kind of felt pretty vulnerable, right? You're really mm-hmm. exposed to the elements, you're really exposed to the landscape and yeah, you're right. There's a long history of people living in these islands. And so it's, it's very humbling in a way, right? Yeah. 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 It's really
1: wonderful. Our next question is, is a bit of a softball, hopefully, uh, to make up for the two <laughs> hardest questions at the end. But do you have a favorite ocean animal? Is it a clam?
3: I mean, officially it's definitely a butter clam, right? Okay. Um, okay. But, secret, but secretly it's probably a, an octopus, which, you know, is still ah. a mollusk. Oh,
1: yeah. 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 I thought you might say hermit crab, but.
3: I do love hermit crabs. In fact, that, I think one of, one of my first dives, um, up in the Aleutians, we saw these, these underwater hermit crabs and they just, you know, they live in these little colonies and fight with each other. It was the best part about the dive. Um, <laughs> I was probably talking about it for weeks, much like Anna. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I would say the octopus for sure. I, I really have a lot of respect for them. They're wonderful. Are, are they they too. up there? Where yeah. Yeah. The g- giant Pacific octopus. I actually, Oh God, there's a giant one. one. <laughs> That. Yeah, I n- I never saw one while I was diving there, but apparently, just a little ways, a little further out than where we were diving, there's there's like a drop off and a wall, right, where all of these apparently all of these octopuses would just sort of congregate and hang out. And I'm like, no, we don't have we don't have to go to I'm the good. wall. <laughs> if I see one, yeah. that's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, you don't want to,
3: uh, but, that's maybe, too but maybe not the wall of arms. Them.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Well, and arms. they're much. They're much larger than the pycnopodia, yep. right? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't.
2: up really the clan nicely. smart. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yes. I think they know. <laughs> they know. See, so, they know for you, sure. so you know, like I don't eat eel. Yeah.
3: Like
2: yeah. I won't, I won't eat eel. I won't eat unagi because I'm convinced no. that if I ever were in their environment, they would know. Yeah. Um, sure. And they would um, understandably want to avenge their, their fallen brethren. Yeah. And I, I'm not. I'm not putting myself in that position. I think that you cannot be too safe.
3: Yeah. Um, No, that's a legitimate concern. So I feel the same way (laughs) about octopus. And yeah, it is Anna. I don't know about, okay. I don't know about eel. I don't know. I don't know their biology as much, but for octopus, certainly they're, they're incredibly intelligent. So they'd figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. It it (laughs) might be within the realm of possibility. I, yeah,
1: very scary (laughs) to me. Oh, yeah. this oh, has been a rough episode for you, but I'm sorry.
2: I'm, I'm <laughs> having a great time sitting here I'm on my dry carpet
1: uh-huh. with your <laughs> on my <mountain>. weighted blankie
3: <laughs> with my bladed blanket on. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. All right. Meanwhile, well, Anna and I Safe space.
3: Co- <laughs> Anna and I come back from the field singing sea shanties. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah. Oh, Amber, oh, yeah. Amber hates a sea shanty, but I, oh, I do love
3: them. Too bad. I, yeah. I respect them. I think it's great <laughs> I,
2: I think it's I you know I think it's a very legitimate art form uh-huh. and form of like intangible heritage I respect it
1: I just mm-hmm.
2: not for you it's just it's just I don't need it personally. that's fine <laughs>
1: that's well <fair. laughs> we're gonna take a quick break, sing a shanty and then we'll be oh no right back <laughs>
0: Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality T-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from and most of those items, and TeePublic often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link.
2: Well, and we're back. And here comes the first very difficult question of two. Um, What is the best thing about anthropology in your mind?
3: So this is actually kind of an easy question for me because I spend most of my, most of my day um, working with physical scientists. So I've thought a lot Mm -hmm. about what I like about anthropology and why, so I can sort of push my agenda on my fellow physical scientists. Yeah, (laughs) it is really, yeah, it is thinking about, yeah, what that you are at NOAA, you would be. Yeah. It's a superpower, I think. Yeah. I'm convinced it's a superpower, but I think, I think my favorite thing about anthropology, right. Is that it really pushes us to challenge what we think we know about what it means to be human mm. and the many ways that societies over the course of human history have defined and redefined the answer to that question. Well,
1: oh, that's, that's basically our, our mission statement, summed up yeah. more perfectly than we've ever done. <laughs> yeah, it. that's, it's <laughs> really good. Mm. All right. Well, knock that one out of the park. That's Number two. <laughs> or Yeah. <laughs> you want to start a podcast, Christine? Because you should. <laughs> um, our last question. If you could be present for any moment in human history or prehistory or... A clam history? Cl- sure. <laughs> uh, or any moment in the history of anthropology, what would you choose?
3: Yeah, so that's, that's a really hard question. <laughs> and I feel like the answer probably changes by the hour. Oh, of course. Uh, <laughs> let's see. What's I your think 7
1: I would- p.m. answer?
3: Yeah, I think it would probably have to be somewhere around the height of Polynesian navigation. Mm, um, okay. You know, like outside of anthropology and archaeology circles, I think I think a lot of people think of Viking culture when they think of early navigation. But, mm. you know, as, as a lot of your listeners probably know, the South Pacific also has a really rich tradition of maritime yeah. navigation.
1: I think more people know I now think, thanks to Moana.
3: Yeah, right. Right. Okay. Oh, so yeah. I thought you were going to say yeah. to us, but no, yeah, definitely Moana. <laughs> yeah no that's fair Fine. that's fair <laughs> but it's just it's just kind of incredible to think about the just enormous amount of environmental knowledge and understanding that people would have had to have in order to make such long voyages across the pacific yeah. right and and so truly they, they they're some of humanity's first uh meteorologists and oceanographers so i mm-hmm. think it would have been a really fascinating
1: not to mention the boat technology time.
3: oh yeah yeah
1: absolutely yeah. And Absolutely. I will bring so, up the whole yeah. testicle navigation thing.
2: I thought you were, yeah. I was just like a, Anna's going to talk about
1: balls like yeah. <laughs> Just that's, that's an intriguing part of it as well. Just like figuring out that you can use the most sensitive part of your male body to, yeah. to oh. read the ocean. Sure. <laughs> One,
3: one's a body. One's body. Yes. You're. Yep. Right. I mean, we all have, we have all sorts of interesting <laughs> physiological traits, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Tips and yeah. tricks. Uh, well, <laughs> I've learned so much. I think Amber... I have, I have learned even more.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and might need
1: some time to recover. But fortunately, it's I'm, me I'm who edits gonna, these like, episodes.
2: I feel like when I... Like, my dying breath will just be like... Well, it'll be clunky. I hope I have a lot of air in my lungs as I'm just like... Okay, we'll workshop it now. For the some mollusks, uh, they, they their growth patterns are like reflective of lunar patterns and just sort of like the moon mm-hmm. and it just like really yeah
1: there's, there's a really direct link between clans and the moon the moon yeah. and just Wild.
2: space and i just i'm just feeling very small you know? <laughs> so this, is, this and that's how i like to feel yes at the end of something yeah. so yeah. this is bringing but this has been we nailed it so fun yeah and so illuminating and and just something that um
3: it's really
1: different yeah. from like from what we usually talk about just yeah. sort of what you do christine is is quite yeah. different
3: well i'm i'm glad to add to the conversation yes. i like to mix all the disciplines where i can you know yeah <laughs> no this is this is a a
1: really
2: great uh illustration of like interdisciplinary work yeah and sort of like yeah. cross-disciplinary research mm-hmm. uh, but oh yeah so I'm gonna,
1: fantastic
2: yeah so i'm just gonna yeah yeah <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to tootle off and look at photos of oh no nightmare creature. I'm going to get some <laughs> texts later.
1: That's just like too many legs. Can I ask um, you about king crabs? You mean oh, any king crabs? We ate some. Queen queen crabs? Yeah. They're real big, yeah. right? They're quite big. They
3: are and and actually that was um so my first year up to, to the Aleutians, my, the person that I worked with from Alaska sea grant um, her and her husband actually would go diving for these things. What? And so on like my last night for dinner, there, but underwater yeah. them. Yeah. Oh, like to, yeah. collect them. Okay. No, just, like them. Absolutely.
2: To
1: fight them. <laughs> yes. To eat them.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, they, they collect them. And so on my last night there, on my first um, summer that I was up there, they, they dove for some, some crab and pulled it up and we had it for dinner a couple of hours later and well, I've been spoiled and snobby about King Crab ever since. I'm I mean, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. But I, I've never seen them um, while I'm diving there. They're actually quite okay. deep. So it's beyond my, my okay. limits of uh, comfort. Okay. So they're, they're over by that octopus wall. Yeah. Yeah. They're deeper. I think they're about 90 okay. to a hundred feet deep. So
2: I can't, I can't imagine any universe in which I would go a hundred feet yeah. under
1: the water. To see it, yeah. something like that. You could just walk it's- into an aquarium and have the same <laughs> basic result.
2: Anna, that's how we got to the point where I can't eat unagi.
1: Like, I don't <laughs> know if <know>. I should <laughs> be walking into any other aquariums anytime soon. I respect your <laughs> fears. <laughs> thank you so much, Christine. This has been amazing. And listeners, thank, yeah, you, thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be in your ears again next week with more content at sea. For our, I think it's our last installment of the Dirt at Sea. Oh, I think it's our penultimate one because ah. we got a little.
2: We didn't. We didn't realize how many weeks we're in this month. Oh
1: yeah. We, we, All right. we we'll, We're committed, so we <laughs> we'll just figure that out. <laughs> um, but whatever type of content it is, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts, and you can also find it at our website, thedirtpod.com, where you can get to our whole back archive of nearly two hundred episodes. Mm. Whew. Um, You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. We're on Twitter at Dirt Podcast. And we're on Instagram at The Dirt Pod. And you can support the show by listening, telling your friends, leaving stars in reviews. Or if you want to financially support the show, you can sponsor an episode of your very own. Find that uh, linked on thedirtpod.com our website and you can join our patreon over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and all of that directly supports the show and the outreach that we do and we we love you all thanks everybody yeah goodbye <laughs> goodbye
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.